We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land. We respectfully acknowledge elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be. Hi and welcome to Wine with Meg and Mel. We're here to help you navigate the world of wine. I'm Mel Gilchrist, joined by Master of Wine, Meg Brotman, and we have a really cool guest today. We have the head of Fine Wine at Endeavour Group. Welcome, Andrew Shedden. Thanks. I've never been introed like that before. That's great. Thanks, man. Oh, really? That's cool. Well, you kind of just yeah. do it when you get home every night. No, uh, no. You really set the bench high now, though. I don't know. It's, if it's a great title. I do expect a fanfare when I walk in the door, but <laughs> it doesn't happen. Trumpets. Everything never happens. So, Andrew, you have a really cool job. Mm. You work for Endeavour, which is what, like Dan's, uh, BWS, Langton's, and then there's a few wineries and things as well. Have you yep. covered the key ones? Yeah, yeah, we own a couple of wineries. We've got 344 pubs as well, so on-prem, off-prem. It's <gasps> I thought of... it was only about 200. Gosh, I didn't realise there was that many yeah, pubs. Yeah, there's a lot now. So I think it's, what, 1,400-ish BWS stores, Whoa. 260 Dan's, 344 pubs. I only 260 Dan's? yeah. They work hard, those stores, though, don't they? <laughs> wow, it doesn't – it just seems to be so present. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they are – I think I think roughly it's about the same market share for the 1,400 BWS stores versus the 260 Dan stores. So they really work. It's really funny. Like, I go shop food shopping. There's a BWS obviously next door to mm. Woolies where I shop. I never go in there. I will drive to Dan's. Really? Oh my gosh. I know, it's quite I I've been in there I reckon <laughs> twice and it's probably been to get yeah, Prosecco well. for my little Aperol spritz. You are a snob, so No well Dan's isn't snobby though. No, that's I think, true. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan's has a bit of range. Yeah, well like bigger, big, bigger bigger store, right? Yeah. Bigger store. Biggest, so yeah. yeah. So BWS is more for your convenience buy. So you are at yeah. Woolies, pop next door, get something great. But if you do want to discover something new, which we might talk about a little bit later on, bigger range at Dan's. Yeah, I think I browse, that's why I go it's like going to yeah. the library for me. Mm. I can yeah, walk for sure. around and decide what I'm gonna <laughs> read that week. Yeah. So you're a buyer, which mm. means that you essentially decide what's end up on the shelves. So we are going to dive into that. We're going to figure out how that actually works, what, what gets on the shelf. We're also going to have a look at some of the best wines or key new trendy type stuff that you've brought in that you think is going to be really big this summer. But first, I've asked you to prepare or to let us know, what have you been drinking? Well, this might be slightly controversial, Mel, because it's arguably not wine. Oh. It's kind of wine, but it's not wine. Okay. Um, I'm really starting, as the weather's starting to warm up, and I've just spent the last couple of weeks in uh, Queensland where it was quite hot, uh, Piquet. <gasps> I think we might be heading towards the summer of yeah. Piquet. Oh, uh, we love Piquet. I don't think we've actually discussed Piquet on here before. I don't know, but I remember reading, I read Bon, bon Appetit magazine, which mm. is an American magazine, and... 18 months ago, so their summer of 21 it would have been, there was this huge article on Piquet. And because I used to work in France, we used to make it mm. all the time. Um, and I just always thought of it as a bit of a yeah. – but we drank it when it was fermenting. Yeah, right. So it was sort of sweet. It was just something to have literally on tap while you were doing vintage. And saw Piquet and thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And then suddenly it's just – I'm hoping will boom. So, Meg, you've made piquet. Do you want to actually explain? So, what happens? You can do it two ways with white grapes. When you press ripe white grapes, you ferment the juice, and then you take the skins of the white grapes. You add some sugar and water. You do it to between three and five percent alcohol amount of sugar, and you re-ferment basically. And then you bottle very young, or you said you're in can. 
Some are, we're doing a, a couple in bottles. You see a few in bottles, see a few in can. Well, we used to bottle very young, so it's still what I call frizzante. Mm. It's still got the gas mm-hmm. from the fermentation in it. Simple, not simple, refreshing. Um, it's like a wine spritzer. It's like taking mm. a glass of it's wine like and adding seltzer. soda water. It's like a seltzer, right? But it's yeah. like being. But it's not, doesn't have those wine products. fake flavors that seltzers yeah. do. You know, the watermelon. It's like and, using a wine product to make a seltzer type thing. But with red grapes, because you've already fermented them. Yeah. When you add the sugar and re ferment them, there's a sourness in there that gives, I think, an extra like sour beer, mm. like sour beer, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, certainly, some of the guys in the winery this year did some from Sangiovese. We'd been making a Sangiovese gin, and then they took the skins from that had been macerating on the gin and did a piquette from that. Stop it! It was epic. Oh. I know. <laughs> I didn't get to try it. I was on holiday. I think when they brought it out, that was another one of these secret squirrel projects. Yeah, um, I love it, but I know that it is controversial because winemakers turn their nose up at it because it's not wine, Mm. whereas I think of it just as a low-alcohol beverage. It's like a beer. We might get to it if we we talk about the ranging process, but I think it hits a whole lot of cues for what people want at the moment. Like forget about wine, you know, specifically, but just more booze consumers in general. It's... Low elk, which wine has struggled with, mm-hmm. versus some of some of our, uh, our other categories. It's arguably very sustainable because, to your point, Meg, it's basically made from a waste product. So you're getting something out of nothing, which yeah. is incredible. Sustainable. Yep, it can be lower price point. It's refreshing. Mm-hmm. It enters other occasions that wine traditionally doesn't play in. It's like tick, 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 tick. Low calorie. Well, low calorie. Low calorie. Yep, it's all of the above, right? Yep. So it's not gonna, and we'll never replace the great wines of the world, and nor should it's it. It's not a wine. But it's not a wine. It's just it's an adjunct or an NX2 wine as a category, which I think is kind of cool. Well, if it's ticking all these boxes, the big question is how are they tasting? Well, it's a good question. They're all tasting <laughs> a little bit different. I think people are trying to still explore what does it actually mean because we're right yeah. at the genesis of what this is, right? Yeah. Well, I say that to your point, Meg. Um, they've been making it in France as, you know, for the vineyard workers for it hundreds of years, right? never great. No. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, we, it was often volatile, which is that um, sweet and sour, so a little bit of vinegary smell. But yeah. if you drank it when it was fermenting, it was pretty bloody delicious because it's, it's still sweet and it's yeah. refreshing. We always added a little bit of acid. Right. But the French didn't because you weren't allowed to add acid, but we mm. had a stockpile of tartaric acid in our, <laughs> our house that we used to add illegally <laughs> at night. Um, so, because so you could have that nice, refreshing yeah. sweet. Yeah. And the owners of the wineries didn't care because, like you said, it's a waste product yeah, yeah. for them. Yeah, exactly. Getting sugar was difficult because in France back then, you could not buy more than a kilo of sugar after the 14th of July so that they couldn't illegally. Chapterize their wine. Yeah, You're right. going to need to go into that a bit more, Meg. What do you mean by that? So in France, if you didn't reach optimal potential alcohol, so 11%. But this is around the world. You could do Mostly it, it in Europe. Yeah, it's legal. It's called chapterization. Yeah. Um, so you add sugar or, a, or concentrated grape must to your juice yeah. to add a few more percent alcohol. But... Europe, but part of the reason that all those rules exist is because <laughs> it's historically not, yeah. there's been a little bit of fraud going on. So you couldn't buy <laughs> sugar um, in big lots after the 14th of July. Is this Very arbitrary. Just wine companies or like can chefs not buy that much sugar as well? All these uh, poor people who want like a sweet coffee. Yeah, that's they what can't, I was you know? <laughs> but if you 
you know, France you know the big supermarkets. <laughs> During winter in the supermarkets, you, you can go in and buy, you can see the sugar on pallets like you would in Costco yeah. or whatever, but you, yeah. you never saw that after the middle of July. So you've so got all these winemakers going to cafes and you know, picking up those little <laughs> sachets, you know. Yes, holding on to them all the time. I mean, we just used to, we added the grape must <laughs> that was for the business, but, you know, they didn't care. Okay, so Phuket, we've been really excited about Phuket for a while. So we were actually really excited to hear that that's what we were drinking. Like, yeah, (laughs) it's been me and Meg have been going on about it for months. Like, it's the next big thing, and people need to get on board because there is so much potential. So, some of these you reckon could be the next big thing? Yeah, I think so. I hope so. Certainly, as we go into summer months, I just again, I think it complements what wine already does. Yeah, so yeah, um, it's playing in a space where you know, mid strength beer is taking off. Off. You talked about some of the reds being a bit sour before, Meg. So, like that sour beer drinker, it plays. It means that wine is playing into that space. Yeah. So, I just think it opens up more occasions for wine, which is which is really cool. I agree, and I think they're slowly showing some data out of the US. Yeah. That LDA legal drinking age and Gen Z is it actually is having a knock-on effect and dragging dragging them, pulling them into the wine mm. space as well because they start with that and they experiment. I mean, I started with Fruity Lexia out of a cask. So did know. I. Exactly. And look how far we've come. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> so Have we though, Nick? Have we? Oh, yeah, definitely. We're, you know, we're not drinking, although we do love the golden cask. Oh, the golden yeah. oak golden cask oak. that we do at Dan Murphy's. I'm not sure that falls under the fine wine category. I, yeah, I didn't bring that along today. <laughs> that is bloody – that was our best <laughs> – Best Chardonnay in the alternative fashion. It was, it was. It actually surprised us. I still go on about it. It's bloody good. We, we drank it. We didn't spit it out that way. Yeah, we drank. So this is our ultimate determining thing is we go through and we taste everything and we always let people know, did we tip it or did we finish it? And oh, right. we finished the finished our taste of Golden Oak. Yeah. I'm going to watch you two very closely when we open up these wines yeah. later on. Right I'll just see if there's, yeah, if there's any I'm tipping. I'm looking at the array and I'm going, there ain't going to be no tipping. I think it'll be okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, good to know. But I, I do think, just picking up on a point you made before about Gen Zs and Millennials, mm. which I think is really important for wine, is that the stat we keep reeling off at the moment whenever we're talking to you know our producer partners or industry groups or whatever, is that... By, see if I can remember this. By 2026, 50% of liquor-consuming Australians will be either Gen Z or Millennial, which is – that frightens, that terrorises me, Meg. But like, they are coming quickly. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think as a category wine is talking to them. It's not keeping up. No, it's, it's, not. it's no. very – and it's been very and we're successful. we're losing our boomers and it's been such a huge part of the boomer life. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And they were – 37% of the alcohol or wine consuming public or something and then they're drinking less and I was really thinking the other day that they're not substituting no or low they're just going no alcohol yeah yeah so, we're, yeah no exactly we're seeing yeah. a lot of them drop off and it's not just because yeah. they're you know dropping off drop it off <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them are still with us. They are, um, they are. But, yeah, it, there's a lot of moderation in that generation. So, yeah, yeah well, I think we've got a category that's been firmly focused on Gen X and boomers and traditionalists for a long time. It's been part of that repertoire. It's still important for the next generation, but it's way, way, way less of their repertoire uh, than the previous so generations. they've got so much more choice. Yeah. Yep. So if we can get them with Pickett. Yep. I am hoping that the natural progression, it looks like that could be yeah. what the data's saying. Yeah. I think it's too early to tell, but if we can pull them into the wine, fine wine category, that'd be great. And fine wine doesn't have to be 
you know, really expensive wine. Everything that you've got on the table here, I would class. I haven't. Well, this one I haven't tried. This is my. But this leads well to my question. Mm. Can you tell us what is fine wine in Joe oh. Murphy's eyes? Oh, <laughs> we get asked that so many yeah. times. Is it a price point or <laughs> well, is it? No, it's different depending on what we're talking about. But okay. I, I, I reckon Meg's on the right track in that. For us, it's about. <laughs> it could be smaller or medium-sized producers. So it's like wines with provenance. Um, I, th- I reckon that's probably the key to it. Okay. They do tend to be slightly more expensive, mm. um, but that can be $20, can be expensive for some people, $50 into right. like obviously the ridiculous heights of Burgundy and Bordeaux where you're into your thousands. But it's not driven by price. It's more driven by um, what's the provenance, what's the story, um, what's the interest in the wine would be what I would Okay. You know, tie up as fine wine. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Mm. And just dancers, say, the last seven to ten years, mm. what is available has just become so exciting. Yeah. Like, I'll be honest, ten years ago I probably wouldn't go to Dan's yeah. looking for what like I would really consider changed. interesting wines. Yeah. But now I have absolutely no problem going to Dan's and knowing that if I need five wines, I can probably find three there. I think that's that is the journey, Meg, that that Dan's the business has been on. So ten years ago, um, as you pull something out of my hair, you had a spider in your hair. Oh, I did I? Yeah. Oh, I'm, <laughs> glad you, I'm glad you did that without actually telling me what was going I saw on. It coming down on the web, and I'm like, oh, okay. You're probably thinking, what is this woman doing? Oh, I was like, yeah, why are you getting up? Is it is it that boring already? It was. It was a tiny little spider. It's oh, good. Little did I know you were saving my life. Going back to what you were just saying, then Meg, about the the growth or the evolution of Dan's, if you like. If you go back 10 years, it was a period of massive growth. So, And I'm saying this, I wasn't even in the business then, but you could see it from the outside looking in where they were just laying down stores all over the country. So basically the job of what would have been my team back then was how the hell do we fill these new big stores with wine? So it was far more homogenous range and it was just about like let's get wine into these stores and out to the people. Over the last, I'd say even shorter period of time, maybe four or five years, it's now a real focus on clustered ranging within states, going down to almost store-specific ranging within Dan's. So looking at a whole lot of data and going, this is the customer set that would come into this store in particular. How do we tailor the range for that for that customer? So what it means is that you've got this massive proliferation across the, the total business of literally thousands and thousands more wines than you would have seen, yeah, only four or five years ago. It's exciting. I mean, every time I go in there now, there's always something new and they're finally finished renovating my store, so I'm very excited. Oh, what's your store? <laughs> the one at Jackson Court in East Doncaster. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This, yeah. this podcast Just- has gone on the whole journey with oh. Meg. With, oh. with her store well, being I renovated. I used to know where everything was <laughs> and then for the last few months, well, probably about a month, hasn't there, in that long, going and going, oh, no, like I couldn't find anything. We're back. I promise you it's all still in there and it might even be better than it was. It's all very tranquil now. It's nice. It's all the, it's the, one of the posh stores now. Oh, well, if we need to go for a walk through, Meg, and have a guided tour, <laughs> we can do that afterwards. I just cl- click and collect now. No, you Unless do. I'm doing, we're going to do a How Low Can You Go episode. How Low Can You Go? We are going to buy the cheapest wines out of dance. Yeah. Oh, wow. But getting back to it. Sorry. So, okay, bye. 
So I have in my mind, Andrew, that you have like a wall of wines, yep. like every wine in the world, and you just like go in on a Monday morning and and pick up like 10 and then sit down and just start drinking and then the best one goes on the shelf. Is that how it works? That is literally what everyone thinks and I <laughs> wish it was like that. It would be pretty bad for my health, I think, if it was actually like that. But no, there's way, 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 way more to it than that. Um, in fact... You know, if we talked through the process of what it looks like to to do a range review at a Dan's or a BWS store end to end, it's um it's only really the very end when you actually get to mm. you know actually drinking the wine. Okay, so how does it work then? Right. So stroke yourselves in. If this gets boring, pull me up. Because <laughs> often people will say you go to a dinner party and they're like, "Oh, you're a wine buyer. Cool. I want to sit next to you." And then I start telling this story <laughs> end to end, and everyone excuses themselves to go to the bathroom. But I'll try and I'll try and That's keep right. it. You're as, among friends. We're all nerds yeah. in this podcast. Love That's it. Right. Yeah. Love it. All right. So basically, there's probably four major blocks, if you like, to how this works end to end. And by the way, I'm talking about really here how we do the uh, the ranging for the substantive range in Dan's and BWS stores. We always do little job lots and cool parcels and trials, which is far quicker and less convoluted than what I'm about to talk about. But this is kind of the range, the core range you'd see if you walked into Dan's. So first thing we do is we assume that all buyers in the past have done a pretty good job in getting... You know, a range that would have been, uh, would have hit all the trends for yesteryear, even up to what people are drinking today. So the focus of any major range review has to start with where is the customer going into the future? Yeah. So that's the first place we start. We go, are there any major changes in what people are doing, how they're behaving, who they are? And do we need to pivot our range accordingly? Mm -hmm. So we'll look at things like customer demographics. And we just talked before about that, um, that Gen Z millennial stat. If you want to like extrapolate that a little bit further, in 2018, I think 70% of the drinking population were Gen X and up, so baby boomers, and 30% were the young kids, if you like. Mm. If you fast forward to 2030, we think that's going to flip exactly on its head. Whoa. So you'll have 70% of consumers will be Gen Z millennial, 30% traditionalist. <laughs> that's so soon. I know, seriously. Oh Lift your game, millennial. I know, yeah. they need to. Well, we, not you, we, personally. No. <laughs> I don't know if I can lift my game anymore. Clearly you're carrying a load. So I, yeah. I am carrying the millennials. You really stared deep into Mel's eyes there. Like you, were talking, you were talking to her. At her. Wow. <laughs> Lift, Mel. <laughs> but that's it. Like, that is a seismic shift, right? So we look yeah. at that over a 10 year period and go, okay, cool. Is the range we've got actually relevant for that consumer of the future? And do we need to make any changes? So we'll look at things like that. We'll also look at massive macro trends that are affecting not just wine, not just liquor, but everything. And do we mm -hmm. need to take that into account? So. I mean, this whole movement, which is awesome, but this movement towards sustainability is becoming really, really big. Um, health and well-being is a major mm -hmm. macro trend. People are way more conscious about what they're putting in their bodies now, including in wine. Uh, local is big. Mm. Um, people really care about where things come from, so we've got to be conscious of that. Um, discovery, people are more promiscuous with anything they want to do. They don't just mm. want to have the same um, meat and veg life anymore. They want to discover new and different things. So all of these macro trends play out, not just in wine, but in everything. And we kind of have to watch that and work out how that's going to impact on yeah. wine. Yeah. So sorry to go a little bit off track, but you say these things like sustainability and, and health mm. and wellness and stuff. And I feel like we've been talking about it in wine for a bit, watching. Is it? Are you seeing people actually make purchase decisions based off that? Yep. 
hundred percent. Is it sizable? Uh, I mean, it's material. Like when you look at, I think when you just look at the the business in totality, yeah. there are still people like the, our biggest red varietal is Shiraz, and there are people that will just keep going back and totally. drinking Shiraz, right? So in white, it's Sauvignon Blanc, and you've got some rusted on people who are a big core of the consumer. Yeah. But outside of that, when you talk about growth or changes, yeah, that's where it's really, really material. And so man, for it's going to grow because if you yep. see that flip to the eighty twenty, yep. that's when it'll happen. It's a core message for that. Generation. Correct, correct. So so we've got to be on that now because even if it's just at the start of that mm. journey and you're starting to hear some rumblings, that's only going to become bigger and bigger as we go forward. And do you then go out to wineries, your suppliers or your, the distributors or whatever, and give say to them this is what we're looking for yep. or are you expecting the wineries to kind of come up with that themselves? Because to be honest, most wine people mm. are pretty – conservative and stuck in the spider's back (laughs) and stuck in their ways. Yes. Yeah. No, I think, well, it's not. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, and this isn't a. This isn't a winemaker thing or a retail thing or a consumer thing. This is kind of an everyone thing. So I think we've all got to look Good. at it, understand what the consumer wants and give them what they want. Because at the end of the day, we are all we all play different roles in an industry that gives a consumer something that they can enjoy. So if they're telling us that this is what they want, we, we kind of, I think we need to listen. Absolutely. Okay, sorry, I got you off track. You can go back to... Um where we were. Where you were. Where we were. So we're, we're macro trends. Macro trends. Macro trends. Yes. So bucket number eight is still macro trends. So we look at all of that and we try and understand it. And, you know, some things move really slowly. Some things move really fast. And we basically try and get an understanding from our excellence, uh, excellent insights team. What are those things? And then how do we think that's going to impact on wine? So that's probably the first thing we do. Okay. Second bucket is going and saying, Okay, cool. If that's what's happening at a like, total customer level, what's actually happening within wine? Yes. And are there any movements in wine that we think attach themselves to those macro trends? Yeah. So we could look at, you know, we could look at cues from what's happening in the on-premise. So I'm a retailer and on-prem usually leads what happens in retail. So yeah. we'll look and see who's drinking what. Uh, on-prem you look overseas and I, I was gonna say that is there a country that we or a city that we follow oh, i in think australia if you look at our demographic it still very closely resembles say a uk or a us market particularly yeah. so they're probably the two yeah and you look at things like i mean i've got a pick pull to penne on the table that we might look at later on um, I heard a crazy stat the other day that in this entire appellation, something like 57% of the total wine of all Pickpool de Penne made on the planet goes to the UK market. It's just absolutely mental, the consumption wow. there. And that's kind of a cue that we saw in London and said, cool, we think that's going to resonate here yeah. a few years ago. So that's when we brought our first one in five or six years ago, that was the cue why. Or then you look at the can movement that's happening in the mm. US and that hasn't really resonated here yet in wine, but that has taken off in the US. So you look at that and go, is there you know, is there a future for can wine because of what's happening over there? Yeah. There's stuff like that. Okay, cool. Yeah, we look at other markets as well, but I'd say I don't know. What do you reckon, Meg? I'd say they're probably the two that yeah, resonate. The t- I think the US. The, it's going to be interesting to watch because demographically they're changing in terms of makeup. They're, Very true. We're still they're much more multicultural, and yes. they're going. I think next year or the year after, the white 
majority mm. becomes a minority. Mm. I think it, um, the Hispanic population will take over to 51% or something. Yeah, right. So there's all these things around the US about making Spanish an official second language. Um, what, so do you think that's going to affect Yeah, because wine? we haven't, particularly in the US, wine is an old-stale white male kind of consumption and yeah. they haven't really hit um, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, mm. the Hispanic, the Latinx population. So they're talking to them now and, in fact, there's another something I was reading the other day that there is amongst Gen Zs a... Uh, Increase in um, purchasing out of more diversely owned mm. wineries. So, mm. um, African American owned, Hispanic owned, Native American, which is there's always with alcohols a little bit like our Indigenous population. It's always a sensitive conversation to have, but there are Indigenous owned mm. um, wineries. So they're seeing a shift. So that really conscious buying. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. Um, I think that will probably will be our next thing as the diversity of our population becomes much more integrated and you're seeing people moving out. You know, I remember working in the London wine uh, trade and looking around and just going, oh, my God, it's all men, they're all white. And at London Wine Trade Fair once there was a black guy that turned up and people were literally like, what's he doing here? You know, this is only in the early 2000s. Really? So it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens yeah, we hate that. in the I US. Think, but that's bang on though, right? So even if – so it sounds like the, the US is seriously diversifying, which is great. Those same trends are happening in Australia and wine as a category has got to be conscious of it and reacting yeah, to it. Yep. I think we're seeing um, – we just recently at Dan's and BWS stores did a um, big spirits review and there was a massive focus on our Asian spirits range. Again, looking at – demographic shifts and just spotting a gap in what our offering was to what is now a significant part of the population. Really smart. And they are flying. I think we're about 12 weeks post that review. So like Japanese whiskey. Sochus as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you had I, a good one? I, I, <laughs> try and stick to wine, Meg. Try and stick to wine. But I think it's awesome that they're it's again it's exactly what i'm saying it's an acknowledgement of what's happening with macro changes to the consumer base in this country and actually reacting to it and giving them what they want um i think wine yeah maybe still has a way to go in that space i think we do but i think you're right you the the new wine bars are making an effort and yeah. it's good to see what we always call the national retailer yep. in dan's and bws actually listening and taking note rather than going, oh, no, we're going to continue to sell Shiraz and Golden Oak. Golden Oak. <laughs> second, second mention of the potty. Oh, wow, hey. Almost every podcast. Is that right? We were so surprised <laughs> We were so surprised. But it just keeps on coming back. But anyway, uh, yeah, so it's good to see that you're actually responding to what the diversification of our market. Well, you have to. And, again, you know, as we go through this end-to-end process of how you do a range review, again, we're not even talking about specific wine products, right? All we're talking about is the customer at this stage and yeah. what do they want, what are they drinking, how are they engaging with alcohol and where. Um, and we've got to, that's got to be firmly in our focus before we make any decisions on at a product level. Okay, so the first bucket was macro trends. The yep. second one, we've gone more into like the product, like how yeah. it can relate to wine. Yep. So what's within wine that's maybe resonating with those macro trends? Okay. 
And then what's next? Third bucket. Oh, yeah, to my seat. Third bucket. Well, we then obviously got to look at what we've already got in our existing range and we have to make space. Like whenever you're going to bring in new, you've got to get out old. There's this old adage in, in retail that um, stores don't have rubber walls. So out with the old, in with the new. Yeah. So, again, you've got to do that in a really um, – considered way because if mm. you're removing a product you're often removing a reason why a consumer came into your into mm. your premise in the first place yeah so we'll look at um you know you have a macro look first so you'll say how much space have i actually dedicated to what within a store mm-hmm. so you know say we think emerging red varieties like Sangiovese and Tempranillo and Minthia or whatever is booming if we need to create more space for that where who who are we taking it off is it unfortunately like a merlot or a cab merlot or old school red blends or something like that so we'll make our macro shifts there You'll look at things like um, uh, price point distribution. So if people are willing to pay more and we think we've got too much cheap wine, it might be out with the cheap in with the slightly more premium. Mm-hmm. Um, you might look at distribution points. So maybe a wine really like a Semsev Blanc still really resonates with a Western Australian consumer but doesn't with a Victorian consumer out of WA, uh, out of Victoria into WA. So you make all of these decisions before you then go, cool, I've got my, I'd call those architectural decisions. And yeah. do we have our space, our range space, right? Yeah. And then you go into, cool, all right, now we've got to look at the products we've got. And you basically look at, you look at a lot of things, but really, really you're looking at sales, you're looking at margin, we're a business, so we, we, we need to be profitable. And you're looking, we look at a lot of customer loyalty metrics. So you look at um, repeat purchase. So uh, if you had five Cabernets at $15 and we needed to remove one to make space for a new Beaujolais down the other end of the store, mm-hmm. you'd look at maybe four of them get good repeat purchase and one of them doesn't. So that's the one that goes because you believe that that consumer will move into one of the other wines. Okay. So you kind of look at it that way. So it's this is really data heavy at this stage. It's a whole lot of Excel spreadsheets um, and you're basically trying to come up with a bunch of candidate SKUs that you think you can move on to bring the new stuff in. So what I'm hearing is if someone like loves Merlot and it goes missing from their dance store, you're the person to send the complaints to. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. I might bunker down in this studio in case they come for me. Um, look, well, it's, it's Merlot. I don't think there's anyone there that cares to. <laughs> I don't think any of our listeners are drinking Merlot. Sorry if, sorry for all you Merlot lovers out there. Oh, <laughs> much maligned Merlot. It's still important though, right? And there are still some wonderful expressions of Merlot, but it would just be about consolidating and yeah. trimming it down, right? You don't need, maybe you don't need a hundred of them. You only need 80 um, or whatever it may be. And again, we'll, we'll find the places in Australia that do over-index in Merlot and we won't touch it there yeah. and we'll reduce it elsewhere. Or we might just make it available online only and not yeah. carry it in a store. So we'll do things like that. And how, how often do you go through this process? Is like, is it an ongoing process all year and just continually rolls over so that you're constantly moving? Yeah, it is. It's constant. So you do a – you probably do like a major red review, a major white review and a major sparkling slash champagne review once a year. Um and we probably call those a range maintenance review, which is doing that architecture stuff I'm talking about, like really modeling or shaping our range based on what we think our customers want. Um, but end to end, those things take, like they take nine or 10 months. 
So it's like painting the Sydney Harbour Bridge, right? You finish mm, and you start again. Start again. Yeah. So you do those, but in and around that, there's a lot of dynamic ranging that takes place. So we'll bring in cool job lots of things or like premium Pinot and premium Chardonnay at the moment, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, is going absolutely nuts. So yeah. we'll do a like a discreet deep dive on that in between all of those reviews. Right. So there's a lot going on, but I'd say these major ones are probably happening once every 12 months. Wow. Okay. So it's exciting because it plays into my, I have a science background, data nerdy mm. side of it, and yeah. then obviously the wine side of it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, the th- in the four buckets that we're talking through, you could almost um, unhelpfully divide those into three and go, the first bit is all about customer, the second bit's all about nerding out and data, and then yes. the third bit's about the wine. Okay. Which, which is what we might get to. So no, I was the, just going to so say, should we get to yeah. the wine? Should we actually talk about, about wine yes, on a wine yes, podcast? Yes. What a novel concept. So that's the fourth <laughs> bucket, right, is, okay, cool. So we've looked at the macro trends. We've looked at what we think is actually happening within wine that would be good. Um, we've looked at our existing range and made some changes to open up some space. And then we actually go, cool, let's go get some wine. So we'll look at producers that we already work with, some really great partners that we've got, whether they're distributors or wineries or whatever from here or abroad. Um, we'll look at a whole lot of new producers that we maybe haven't spoken to previously and, and, and go out to them. And we ask them to submit all of their wines or all of the wines that we think will be appropriate for mm. the, you know, for the space we've created. So then it gets fun. And this is the bit, go back to the very start, Mel, when you said, is this what your yeah, job actually is? This is, the bit, this is the bit where we drink the wine. <laughs> so we'll have a, I mean, we run a wine panel uh, once a week where we look at stuff constantly. So we had it yesterday and looked at maybe 30 or 40 wines. But then, you know, once a year when we do these major maintenance things, we might look at three, four, five, six hundred wines um, at a go. And what then, do you mean, not? Not in one day. Uh, no, over a couple of days. But, you you know, you sort of break into groups. You might be doing, I don't know, 200, 250 it's in like a day. judging. Yeah, it's like judging. Yeah. Uh, judging was like 100 in a day. I'm not. Yeah, 130 is what they say. About 130, yeah. yeah. 200 shitload of wine. Well, divide and conquer. So you're probably only yourself seeing maybe 100, 150 Okay, wines. that sounds a bit more manageable. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we'll probably get through as a team. We'd get through about 250, I think. Oh. So and how many on the team? Like, do they have specific skills? Is someone particularly looking for white wine and someone's particularly what red wine or? Yeah, well, we've got. Different teams that look after different colours, if you like. Yeah. Um, so red, white and sparkling. And then we've also got um, – so that's kind of how our substantive commercial wine team is set up. And then you've got my fine wine team who look after more geographical regions. So oh, they're okay. experts cool. in basically by state. So they'll be looking for, um, you know, hero producers and, and up-and-coming producers within a state. And is it blind? Uh, no. So when we do like, we've got our own wine awards, the Deco- the Dan's Decoded Wine Awards that happen every year. We run that like a proper wine show. It's completely yeah. objective, completely blind. Um, when we're doing these types of reviews, it's not, because it's not just about no, the liquid. Right. It's about the total package. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, how will these labels pop on shelf? Will they resonate? Yes. Will, like sometimes it's things as simple as, Will people be able to pronounce this? Like, is it going to, you know, resonate with a <laughs> yeah. consumer? So we have to look at the whole package when we make a ranging decision. So it's all open. We look at the bottle. Cool. We talk about that as well. Because yeah. we always say the label sells the first bottle of wine and the winemaker sells the second. Oh, I love that. I haven't heard that before, but that is bang yeah. on. Mm. So you- I haven't heard that either, Meg. I like that. Haven't you? No. Oh, that's kind of what we were taught at uni. 
Yeah, right. So, you know, you can bang on about how bloody fantastic you are, but if you've, you haven't got it right sitting on the shelf, yeah. then – and particularly when you're dealing with pick pull de pinne and the frappato oh, that God, you yeah. bought, people don't know. So yeah. I would only pick it up if yeah. it caught my eye, really, yeah. if I was sort of the average general consumer. Oh, God, yeah. And a big, in a bigger store as well, you're talking about if you're at 1,200 square feet, there's thousands yeah. of wines, right? Like, yeah. yeah, you've got to be popping or you're not going to get picked up. Wow. So we look at that, right? So now, okay, so what are we doing? We're tasting the wines. We're talking about them live. They're not blind. So we make decisions on the spot and we've got all the numbers in front of us as well. So we're like, what price point is this? How does this fit into our architecture? What's the quality of, of wine? And we've got some expert tasters in the room. Um, everyone is either, you know, um, WCT three or diploma um, qualified. I just realised I'm sitting in a room with my former lecturer. By the way, do you know that Mel? What? Meg used to Meg lectured diploma. me. Yeah, when Aww. I did my diploma. Yeah, Your so this is a, this is a real finish? flashback. There's yeah. so many that d- haven't finished. No, seriously, it's yeah. The class size at the start of the diploma was. <laughs> oh no, I do remember. Yeah, we were down to about six, I think, where there was yeah. a handful of you by the end of it. Well, for anyone out there who's thinking about doing it, I'd say your tasting group is the most important mm, thing, yeah. not just for tasting, but for talking about wine. Because in our total class of thirty, Meg, I reckon only about six or seven passed, and five of them were my tasting group. Yep. Wow, we all, all passed. So. Um, yeah, I think it's more down to them than it was down to, to me. And you, obviously, Meg. As well. <laughs> well, we don't teach you any. It's all about exam, getting you through the exam yeah, rather yeah, than yeah. actually teaching you anything these days. Yep. Yeah. You've got to do it, SAT and all that. But anyway, so we've got <laughs> back some – to, Back, back to, to Okay, what are we talking about? So you've obviously – so we've got some good palettes in the room, um, people who show judge, people who have who've been through that sort of that level of education. So we make an assessment on the quality of the wine. We make an assessment on the commercial viability of the wine. Um, we look at how much volume is available, so where can we put it? And then we look at what we were talking about before, like what's the total proposition look like? What does the label look like? Do we think that a customer will pick this up? And then and then it goes on shelf. And then we've obviously got to... have got to get it in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it, well, then it really starts, right? Because we've now made a decision that, hey, I think this wine might be right for our stores. So then it's obviously back to the producer. Can you do this? Um, do you want to go to these places? How are we going to get the wine to the store? Oh and you gosh. go through all of that process. And then finally, we're 10 months later, Meg we're sitting, picks it up in her new store. Yeah. We're sitting in Meg's house <laughs> drinking them on a podcast. Do you ever kind of have some argy-bargy where, you, you know, you're saying, no, no, this has got to really go and everyone's going, no, no. 100%. Okay. All yeah. the time. That's good. It's seriously robust. Particularly when, again, you're talking about, we're not talking about the substantive like base range that's in store doing well we're talking about pushing the range around the edges to attract new customers basically into store so you're starting to push the boundaries on you know yeah where do we want to take this category and that always always involves robust conversation which is awesome otherwise we wouldn't get to the spot we need to get to and have you ever really stuffed it up and it's just failed well we talked about Paquette at the start, right? Which is a risk, no, right? It won't fail. Well, well I, I don't think it will it up, either, darling. We're talking it up. But that's that's one where like <laughs> we're we're pushing the boat out, and that. I mean, yeah, the other one is it is uh, a risk in like so as we said at the, at the top. There's not really wine, um, but you look at other 
you know, areas of what we would call lo-fi wine that are, again, pushing the boundaries of what wine is and isn't, whether that's, um, you know, like uh, super skinsy whites or really juicy juby reds or yeah. pet nats or whatever. Um, yeah, we, I mean, we take some risks in that space and some work, some don't work. If they don't work, we move on. If yeah, they I think do it's grow. more about positioning that people wouldn't naturally think of dance, but with time and True. evolution, yeah, yeah, you will be – considered a gatekeeper in that space. I think at the moment you've got the beard, mm. but mostly it's um, <laughs> that's what I think that's why to. I got the job. Yeah. <laughs> I don't see you, this but it's mostly, yeah. it's mostly, like you said, it's the entree. So they're the gatekeepers yeah. of yeah. That, those styles Big at the time. moment. Big so, time. Well, that's, smaller retail. Well, that goes back to the top. And again, we look at what happens there. We're all wine nerds. The buyers are all wine nerds. We're yeah. all out at wine bars every other night. And we're looking at these things. We're trying these things. And, and, and that's what, you know, that's what we then want to bring back into the retail scene. Cool. And do you like, I'm just imagining, right, you're walking down the hallway in Endeavour and you're like going past the beer person. Do you like lock eyes and like, <laughs> is it like fierce competition between categories? You're like, I want everyone to buy wine. And they're like, no, I want everyone to buy beer. So good. Such a good question. I've got a re- <laughs> one of my one of my best mates is the head of beer, so I've got a really good oh, opportunity to have a pot shot at him here. Yeah, but I, I, won't, I won't. I won't. I'll tell the truth. No, it's very collegiate because again, like if you go back to the start of the process, yeah, all of those macro trends are not wine specific. And as a group, we're trying yeah. to work on a like basically a total beverage solution. So where there isn't an opportunity for wine to play, and there is for say premix or beer, um, we as a group we want to go hard at that or I use that again the Asian spirits example I gave before in the, in the recent spirits review I think there's a real opportunity there and there was a gap in what we were doing so we are pushing you know mm. Adam and his team in spirits like go after it yeah you know so um no unfortunately no oh. between categories. well beers changed so much well I was actually just thinking how Piquette has so much potential to steal share from beer or like premix yeah so I was like are you gonna like rub them up like uh-huh well, I mean, <laughs> take any people Ultimately, as the as look, looking after the fine wine buying team, we yeah. are advocating for wine as a category, right? Yes. So I do want wine to play in those occasions, and I want the consumer to have a choice and yeah. not just be buying sour beer, but like think about this type of piquet or this type of pet nat or something that might be playing mm. in that space. So I definitely want that, but um, I mean, at the end of the day, we're just trying to put um, drinks in, you know, all of the sociable occasions that a yeah. person would want, right? So it's relatively collegiate. Well, let's try some wine. We Should we? are clearly oh, going to have to make a second episode okay, cool. out of this. We are, we, we are not going to cut into wine now because we're already 45 minutes in. Oh, sorry. I no, just no, have. good. Oh, no, it's fantastic. I think it was the spider thing that threw me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just sitting under here. Well, I it's just still have, alive. That's cruel. I just have one. Oh, my God. Thank you. Kill it while we're. Oh, my God. It's one a, of those white tails. So I really yeah. think I've, I've saved you. Oh, my God. Getting your face melted off. Jesus Christ. There, there's a murder happening on the podcast <laughs> live, though. <laughs> I've done it. I've witnessing I've done slaughter. It. <laughs> my last question before we wrap up this episode yeah. um, is. Bay juice does it work? Is what? What? Bay juice. I see it at all the dams now. You pick it up from the register. No? Come on. What is what? bay juice? <gasps> okay. Bay juice is Korean and it is like a type of pear puree or juice. And you're supposed to drink it before you go out drinking. 
And oh. and it's supposed to stop a hangover and keep you healthy. And I'm seeing it at the cash register at all the dance, and all my friends are trying it. I wish this was a vodcast so you could see Meg's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> She's not sure about the concept. Well, I haven't is it tried liquid? it. Or is it like a pear oh, no, mash? I think, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I haven't actually tried it, but I've got a friend who swears by it. No. Not sure. I've... I think it'll probably beat the milk, but. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I reckon everyone that always complains, you know, it's a big thing for wine. They go, oh, the sulfides in the wine's giving me a headache. Yeah. It's like, mate, I reckon it was the six bottles you drank last night that probably did it to you. You can tell them it's the biogenic amines. We've proved it. Whoa. Uh, yes. oh, I feel like I need to listen to that episode before I go. <laughs> <laughs> it just not- rolls off the tongue, Matt. There's a whole, a girl did a um, MW thesis on it. Yeah, right. That's really interesting. All right. Well, we're going to come back I next week. Yeah, clearly I'm like, no, we're moving along. Um, <laughs> we are going to come back next week. And we asked Andrew to bring in bottles that he's not only like super excited about, but that tie into all these trends that we've been talking about. Um, and he has the coolest selection and there's some awesome uh, value for money here as well. So you want to tune back in next week. But until then, enjoy your next glass of wine. Drink well. 